Part 2, Chapters 1 through 3 of The Origins of Christianity by Thomas Whitaker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Von Manen on the Pauline Literature. Part 2, The Epistle to the Romans. Introduction. For ages, the fourteen epistles attributed to St. Paul in the New Testament were all undoubtedly accepted as proceeding from the apostle of the gentiles the leaders of the reformation in the sixteenth century however were so far critical as to contest the epistle to the hebrews and the doubt as to its genuineness has never since been suppressed from the latter part of the eighteenth century more and more inroads have been made on the epistles still accepted as genuine by the tubingen school these were reduced to four, namely, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians. In these also, interpolations were admitted by their defenders, and by degrees it came to be seen that, under the application of the tests which had been fatal to the rest, even the epistles universally received could not hold together as a whole. So the process of demolition went on, until before the end of the nineteenth century the time could be seen fast approaching when of the once imposing edifice not one stone should be left on another in justifying the conclusion arrived at the appeal is to those who are willing to examine the epistles without traditional assumptions whether those of the church or of the science of our days taking first the epistle to the romans we place ourselves before it in complete freedom and ask what is it and whence our aim is simply to know the truth as regards christian antiquity one the nature of the work we speak of the epistle to the romans but is the composition properly an epistle Undoubtedly, it presents itself under the external form of a letter. This, however, is mere appearance, as even the opening verses make plain. The disquisition contained in chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, betrays the author of a dogmatic treatise who wishes to dispose as summarily as possible of a number of disputed points, the discussion of which is current in certain circles even apart from this the address is far from clear comparison of the text chapter one verse seven with other passages for instance chapter twelve verse three and with a usage known to ecclesiastical writers shows that the words tois usin mean those that really are that is do not merely seem to be christians what is indicated is a spiritual circle of hearers, not a local community. And, indeed, there are specific reasons for holding the mention of Rome in this place, as also in chapter 1, verse 15, to be interpolated. Generalized rhetorical forms, again, such as occur in many places, for instance, chapter 2, verses 1, 3, 17, chapter 9 verse 20 chapter 11 verse 13 chapter 12 verse 3 chapter 14 verses 4 10 and 15 point to the great public 
and not to a limited circle of determinate persons, as the audience addressed. However patient we may be in the matter of salutations, it is difficult to find truth and not fiction in the words, All the churches of Christ salute you. Chapter 16, verse 16. The contents generally are those of a book rather than of a letter. Neither the doctrinal nor the hortatory discourses which succeed one another seem more adapted to the needs of the Christians at Rome than anywhere else. Viewing the work as an epistle, we try in vain to form any idea of the relation between the writer and his readers. No light is thrown on this relation, either by the Acts of the Apostles or by tradition. According to tradition, Peter and Paul were the founders of the community at Rome, whereas it follows quite clearly from the epistle that the Christians addressed were such before the writer had ever seen them face to face. We get no more light from the details, which indeed frequently give contradictory impressions. The faith of the Roman Christians is spoken of throughout the whole world, chapter 1, verse 8, so that the apostle can put it on a level with his own, chapter 1, verse 12. And yet he speaks of himself as striving to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest he should build upon another man's foundation. Chapter 15, verse 20. No explanation has succeeded in making it comprehensible why Paul should address such a letter to Christians personally unknown to him at Rome. In no traditional record do we come upon a trace of any impression, favorable or unfavorable, made by it among those to whom it is supposed to have been addressed. And yet, it was not the kind of letter to be simply received, read, and laid aside. So various are the contents that grounds can be assigned with equal show of reason for holding that the community at Rome consisted of Jewish Christians, of heathen Christians, and of a mixture of both. Sometimes, indeed, the work seems to be meant even for Jews and heathens who are outside Christianity. The result of the whole examination is that, whoever wrote it, we have before us not an epistle in the proper sense of the term, but a book, a treatise in epistolary form. 2. The Unity of the Book Whatever conclusions may be arrived at as to the way in which it was composed, the relative unity of the book in its traditional form must be recognized. That there should be slight additions or interpolations is a matter of course in a book coming down from antiquity that has been much read and has passed through the hands of many copyists. The cases of this kind that occur and are recognized by textual critics do not in the least affect the general view we must take. None of the pieces that make up the composition can be removed without injury to the whole. If we suppose it to end, as has often been fancied, at chapter 14, verse 23, we feel that there is no proper close. In content, as well as in form, it is a whole as it stands. 
with a little good will we may find in it what might appear to the writer a coherent development of the pauline doctrine and an ordered reply to the objections urged against it the minor disquisitions fit into the scheme as a whole a conclusion such as we have was an essential part of it the traditional text is accordingly no product of an accidental conjoining of scattered pieces there is identity of style as may be seen by comparison with the epistle of james or of clemens romanus or with one of the johannine epistles thus most even of the critics who propose to divide it have been obliged to recognize the pauline origin of the separated parts and not merely of that which they regard as the original epistle addressed to the romans this insistence on the unity of the work had to be placed in the foreground to guard against misunderstanding of what follows three its composition for the unity insisted on is it must be repeated a relative unity it reminds one of the unity of a synoptic gospel or of the acts of the apostles the writer has not freely or logically developed his own thought but has roughly sketched out a plan with a view to the incorporation of older writings which he had before him into this plan he has fitted his materials modifying and adapting them but not effacing the signs of their previous separate existence hence the discrepant judgments that have been passed by critics according as they have been struck by the identity of the hand that put together the whole work or by the difference of character in the parts there are sutures that make its dependence on written sources visible to the attentive reader a traces of juncture and manipulation to discover these let us examine the parts of the epistle successively as they present themselves according to a natural division the address chapter one verses one through seven verses two through six break the continuity between verses one and seven their doctrinal intention is plain one stress had to be laid on the prefiguring of paul's gospel in the prophetic parts of the old testament verse two the fact that the catholics who affirmed the connection with the old testament and the marcionites who dwelt on the break with it alike appealed to the authority of paul shows the probable absence in the older paulinism of any definite pronouncement on the point two the affirmation that the son of god is a descendant of david according to the flesh verse three proceeds from the effort to reconcile the old pauline with the messianic idea characteristic passages in the epistle show absence of all preoccupation with the manner in which the son of god was made flesh a very close analysis of expressions such as that of chapter eight verse three would lead to the notion that the body of christ was merely apparent from a point of view like this descent from david could be of no importance three the intention of verse four 
in spite of some unintelligible words in the text as it stands evidently is to assert that jesus became the son of god by rising from the dead this conception that he became or was made the son of god was not unknown to the old christian world see for instance acts chapter 2 verse 36 chapter 26 verse 23 but finds no place in the thought of the writer for whom the son of god was a pre-existent being romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 32 sent to manifest himself on earth before he died and in his death chapter 5 verses 6 8 and 10 4 the same verse in affirming the identity of the pauline son of god with jesus christ our lord illustrates the process of fusion by which the favorite expressions of the paulinists and of the old disciples of jesus were combined the variation again between christ jesus and jesus christ compare verses one and four is not arbitrary the first belongs distinctively to paulinism for which christ as a supernatural being is prior the second is a formula of reconciliation enabling the older disciples to adopt the new ideas comparison of variants in the texts where the two types of expression occur shows that the predominant tendency was to change from the former to the latter five the intention of verse five is to combat the mistaken imagination that paul attained his apostleship in an illegitimate way that is not as called by jesus the plural however contrasting as it does with the singular which is retained in verses one and eight through sixteen shows that the writer was thinking not of paul alone but of paul and those of his direction and betrays the hand of the redactor six the particular intention of verse six is to convey the idea that the original readers of the epistle were heathen christians brought to the gospel by paul the redactor is aiming at a wider public consisting of all kinds of believers not simply of the few who have reached a spiritual height to whom as verse seven shows the original form of the epistle was addressed introduction chapter one verses eight through seventeen here we find a complication of inconsistent reasons for desiring to come and see those who are addressed at rome this again points to the hand of the redactor as does also the glaring want of sequence towards the conclusion of the passage the whole however is not to be held for the work of the redactor himself but rather for an attempt to combine pre-existent ideas current in different surroundings one paul desired to visit the romans in order to give them some spiritual gift and for mutual confirmation in the faith verses nine through twelve two he was constantly making plans that he might have fruit of his missionary activity among the brethren at rome as elsewhere verse thirteen 
three though he had no reasons connected with the particular community at rome still he wished to come because he felt himself a debtor to all men verse fourteen first part chapter one verse eighteen through chapter eight verse thirty nine when we enter upon the attempted demonstration of the power of the gospel for the salvation of all believers whether jews or greeks we find too many incompatible positions to leave open the possibility that the whole proceeded from the same author developing his own thought without reference to sources in detail the characteristic procedure is the mechanical linking of sentences by means of particles that should denote logical transition this is intelligible on the supposition that the whole is composite but not otherwise among the more prominent antitheses the following may be noted the god who will render to every man according to his works chapter two verse six is not precisely the god of the polynism taught elsewhere in the section the writer who says that the doers of the law shall be justified chapter two verse thirteen is other than the writer who says that by the works of the law there shall no flesh be justified chapter three verse twenty again the verses chapter three verses twenty five through twenty six express a different idea from that which is indicated in chapter three verse twenty four and other passages taken in conjunction with chapter eight verse twenty in the former the son of god is offered as a propitiation by god to himself to satisfy the demands of his own justice in the latter he is the price of man's redemption paid to a power standing over against god note the words dia ton hupaxanta in chapter eight verse twenty and compare with galatians chapter three verse thirteen chapter four verse five first corinthians chapter two verse eight chapter five verse five chapter eight verse five chapter ten verses twenty through twenty one the first-named passage proceeds from a more jewish-minded paulinist in the second we detect a gnostic thought according to the passages of the latter type the justification on god's part is gratuitous chapter three verse twenty four further in the comparison between adam and christ chapter five verses twelve through nineteen the coming of death into the world is ascribed alternately to the sin of one man verse twelve a thirteen and fourteen and to the sin of all verse twelve b another antithesis becomes visible in the idea of a permanent moral struggle as distinguished from a redemption once for all completely effected the impressive passage chapter seven verses seven through twenty five cannot be reconciled with the passages where the christian is described as having broken for ever with sin in becoming free from the law to make the ejaculation of chapter seven verse twenty four with its note of moral seriousness refer only to paul's pre-christian life is to reduce it to mere verbiage 
the aspiration here is for freedom from the body and it refers to the inward conflict still to be undergone by those who from full conviction have already embraced christianity whatever may be the original source of this passage the redaction proceeds from one whose aim it was to rescue the pauline teaching from the reproach of antinomianism second part chapters nine through eleven it takes good will to find any connection between the second part and the first logical sequence there is none we hear nothing more of justification by faith even the words dikaios dikaiun dikaiusthai are not to be found the question is a new one why do the heathen accept the gospel while israelites exclude themselves from its benefits the opinion of the critics who regard this piece as originally by another hand is substantially correct though as was said before a relative unity has been imposed on the different parts in the redaction it forms a whole by itself and has a conclusion of its own as indeed the first part with which it is externally linked has an excellent one in its successive chapters an intimate relation of the writer to israel is supposed which the preceding ones in no way suggest he is eager to declare himself an israelite of the seed of abraham of the tribe of benjamin chapter eleven verse one in the former part an entirely different tone is taken with the jew chapter two verse seventeen whom the author addresses as if he had nothing in common with him differences of vocabulary besides the one mentioned above can be pointed out notwithstanding the general uniformity of style in chapters one through eight the words israelite and israel do not occur in chapters nine through eleven the first occurs twice and the second eleven times on the other hand the word jew occurs nine times in chapters one through three and only twice in chapters nine through eleven in both of which cases besides it may with probability be referred to the redactor in chapters one through eight christ is called seven times in chapters nine through eleven never the son of god here the condition of salvation is to confess with the mouth that jesus is the lord and to believe in the heart that god raised him from the dead chapter ten verse nine the peculiar relation of faith to grace and the spirit does not come into view the general drift of the three chapters is the defense of paul from the charge that he had no care for the ancient people of god like the preceding ones they form in themselves not a single but a composite whole being put together from sources this may be shown by inconsequences in the order inconsistencies in detail and peculiar repetitions but especially by the presence of broadly contrasted views as to the rejection or return of israel 
the first view is that the rejection of god's people needs no explanation beyond his good pleasure chapter 9 verses 14 through 29 next we learn that in fact god has not rejected his people for a remnant has believed chapter 11 verses 1 through 8 then at the close not to attempt to follow all the complex involutions the mystery is revealed that when the fullness of the gentiles is come in all israel shall be saved so that finally all are saved chapter 11 verses 25 through 32 such divergent views were certainly not born in the same brain third part chapter 12 through chapter 15 verse 13 the attachment of the third to the preceding parts is loose and merely mechanical it would not be correct to say that paul has put first the statement of his doctrine and then added a hortatory completion there are hortatory passages in the foregoing chapters as there are doctrinal statements in those of the third part this last while forming in the sense already defined an essential portion of the whole has a different origin from the others in many peculiarities of vocabulary and contents it agrees with portions of the epistles to the corinthians more than with romans chapters one through eleven the idea for instance of a measure of faith imparted to each chapter twelve verse three is foreign to the earlier chapters of romans both in expression and in thought while it agrees in both with passages in corinthians for romans chapters one through eleven faith is the one first principle of the new life and carries with it everything else the idea of a distinction among the gifts of grace chapter twelve verses six through eight has its parallel not here but in first corinthians chapter twelve verses four through eleven and verses twenty eight through thirty this section of the epistle is in itself less organic than the other two construction of the passages for instance chapter thirteen verses one through seven out of various fragments is disclosed by alternations otherwise inexplicable between the second and third persons singular and plural and by the use of different terms for the same office the dissertation on the strong and the weak believer chapter fourteen through chapter fifteen verse thirteen presents itself as an independent but not unmodified piece the weak in the faith appear from chapter fourteen verse two to be vegetarians but are afterwards treated as jewish-minded christians for instance first corinthians chapters eight through ten who esteem one day holier than another chapter fourteen verse five and regard some meats as unclean verses fourteen and following perhaps as has been conjectured the original ending of the piece is concealed in chapter fifteen verse five which a redactor extended by the next verse adding his own terminal formula to the simpler one of the primary document conclusion chapter fifteen verse fourteen 
through chapter 16, verse 27. The conclusion has so little of an organic character, either in relation to the whole or in itself, that many critics who hold to the Pauline origin of the rest of the epistle have declared it not genuine, or have tried to account for its presence here by supposing it brought in from another epistle of Paul. For us, the question is not whether it is genuine, but whether it was originally the conclusion of the epistle entitled To the Romans. This question has already been answered in the affirmative, though the answer does not exclude further queries as to possible modification and rearrangement. The last chapter has a peculiarly inorganic character. Some have supposed verses 1 through 20 to be part of a letter Paul wrote to the Ephesians, which is, so far, to admit the theory of composition out of fragments. b. Witnesses for the existence of a shorter epistle. The result of the preceding investigation is that the epistle to the Romans was made rather than written. There is evidence also that it was once extant in a shorter form. This may be inferred with probability from the omissions of Irenaeus and Tertullian inciting it. But in any case, it is clear that the Gnostics, whom they opposed, and who preceded them considerably in time, used a shorter epistle. According to Hippolytus, in Philosophumina, Book 7, Chapter 25, who makes no remark here on the textual difference, Basilides quoted the substance of chapter 8, verses 19 through 22 in a briefer and more intelligible form than that of the canonical text. The creation itself also groaneth and travaileth together, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. The inference that he had a different text before him is confirmed by comparison of chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, with another citation, which Hippolytus makes further on. To Moses, from Adam, then, sin reigned, as it is written. This is not a quotation from the canonical text, but recalls it, and is explicable on the supposition that Basilides used a form of the epistle no longer extant we have more information about the text read by Marcion. This was certainly shorter than the canonical text, which Tertullian accuses him of mutilating. We cannot, of course, take the word of the Catholics for it that their text was the original, though there is no need to accuse them of bad faith. The mere fact that the copies they had before them contained passages not included in the epistle recognized by the heretic, was sufficient in their own eyes to justify the charge of falsification current from Irenaeus onward. In reality, there are positive grounds for holding the form of the epistle read by Marcion to be the older. Irenaeus wrote his chief work against the heretics at least forty years after Marcion came forward at Rome, and this allows time for modifications to be made in the text, 
and for unjust suspicions to arise about the reason of the differences. For Marcion, Paul was the apostle. He did not take him over as an authority from his opponents. Irenaeus and Tertullian, on the other hand, were busily engaged in trying to capture the apostle of the heretics in the Catholic interest. Which, then, is more probable? That Marcion set up for himself an authority to which he could appeal only after extensive mutilations? Or that that authority, which, as we must remember, he himself and the men of his direction had brought into repute, afterwards received additions and underwent modifications from the other side. We need not regard him as exempt from the bad habits of the second century in regard to texts that were to be quoted as authoritative. But if he attempted a falsification on so large a scale, it seems strange that he did not carry it through more efficiently. In the text he used, passage after passage stood which his opponents could afterwards allege against him, while others were absent which did not even, to the smallest extent, tell against any position of his. And if, while he was about it, he had done the work thoroughly, he would not have found it necessary to write a controversial treatise to prove that Paul, in spite of some appearances to the contrary, was really on his side. On all grounds, we must conclude that Marcion's shorter text was earlier and more original than the canonical text. C. General View Putting the various considerations together, we may state the result thus. The epistle to the Romans was constructed with the aid of short treatises already extant. These were at various times taken up into a composition in the form of a letter, which went through several editions. Each time they were modified and adapted in view of the relation to the whole. The earliest edition was much shorter than the final one. Conjectures may be formed as to the outlines of the epistle at earlier stages, but there can be no thought of actually reconstructing the editions or determining their no doubt very complex relations to one another. End of part two, chapters one through three.